0: section 35 of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume 1 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume 1 by George Lilly Crake, chapter four, part eleven, tiptoft, Earl of Worcester, Woodville, Earl Rivers. The most distinguished among the English nobility of this rude age for learning and intellectual tastes was John Tiptoft, originally Lord Tiptoft, who was created Earl of worcester by henry the sixth he afterwards however attached himself to the yorkist family for which he was put to death by warwick during the short restoration of henry the sixth in fourteen seventy his execution being the only vindictive act of bloodshed by which that revolution was stained the latest continuation of the history of the abbey of croyland printed by fulman in his rerum anglicarum scriptorum pages four forty nine to five forty six asserts that the earl had by his cruelty in the office of constable of the tower acquired the hatred of the people who called him the butcher but general and passionate imputations of this kind cannot be allowed to go for much in the inflammation and ferocity of such a contest as then agitated men's minds the more specific statement of other writers is that worcester was sent to the block under the pretence of punishing him for cruelty of which he had been guilty many years before while exercising the government of ireland particularly towards two infant sons of the earl of desmond as walpole has well said it was an unwonted strain of tenderness in a man so little scrupulous of blood as warwick to put to death so great a peer for some inhumanity to the children of an irish lord nor does one conceive why he sought for so remote a crime he was not often so delicate tiptoff seems to have been punished by warwick for leaving henry for edward when warwick had thought fit to quit edward for henry others of the old chroniclers ascribe the charges brought against him to the malice of his enemies he was probably singled out for destruction as being the ablest and most dangerous man of his party for worcester was distinguished for his political and military talents as well as for his scholarship it would be strange at any rate if his intellectual acquirements which raised him so high above the herd of his fellow-nobles and the great body of his countrymen should instead of softening and humanizing him according to the ancient poets celebration of the effect of having faithfully learned the ingenuous arts have had an influence of the very opposite kind upon his nature and conduct the earl of worcester was an ardent lover of books and was as well as Duke comfrey a liberal contributor to the shelves of the rising public library of the university of oxford on his return from a pilgrimage to jerusalem after residing for some years at padua and venice and making great purchases of manuscripts in both those places he repaired to rome to satisfy his longing curiosity with a sight of the library of the vatican and drew tears of delight from pope Pius the second the learned aeneas silvius by a latin oration which he pronounced before him of his literary performances the principal one that remains is the translation of cicero's treatise on friendship which was published by caxton he was one of the chief patrons of this earliest english printer who says of him that he was one to whom he knew none like among the lords of the temporality for science and moral virtue a far better testimony to his worth than the party spirit of the croyland historian or even the temporary clamour of the populace if such did make itself heard against him in the triumph of the opposite faction is of the reverse he was only in his forty-second year when he was put to death at which death says caxton every man that was there might learn to die and take his death patiently fuller has said that the axe then did at one blow cut off more learning than was left in the heads of all the surviving nobility yet there still survived a noble contemporary of tiptoft by no means to use the words of walpole inferior to him in learning and politeness in birth his equal by alliance his superior greater in feats of arms and in pilgrimages more abundant this was anthony wydville or woodville lord scales and earl rivers the brother of the fair queen of edward the fourth by a fate closely resembling that of the earl of worcester the brave and accomplished lord rivers was beheaded at pomfret castle by order of the protector gloucester afterwards richard the third along with the queen's son sir richard gray and other victims on the twenty third of june fourteen eighty three the earl when he thus perished had not completed his forty-first year at a famous combat which took place in smithfield between rivers then lord scales and anthony the bastard of burgundy in fourteen sixty seven the earl of worcester presided as lord high constable so that two of the chief figures at this one of the latest real passages of arms held in england were the two englishmen the most distinguished of their time for those intellectual tastes and accomplishments in the diffused light of which the empire of chivalry and the sword was ere long to fade away as the stars disappear before the sun walpole has drawn the character of earl rivers in his most graphic style the credit of his sister the countenance and example of his prince the boisterousness of the times nothing softened nothing roughened the mind of this amiable lord who was as gallant as his luxurious brother-in-law without his weaknesses as brave as the heroes of either rose without their savageness studious in the intervals of business and devout after the manner of those whimsical times when men challenged others whom they never saw and went barefoot to visit shrines in countries of which they had scarce a map he was also one of caxton's great patrons and was the author of several of those translations from the french which the latter printed in a manuscript copy in the archbishop's library at lambeth of one of these translations that of the dicts and sayings of the philosophers which rivers executed for the instruction of his nephew the young prince of wales to whom he was governor there is an interesting illumination in which the earl is represented introducing caxton to edward the fourth his queen and the prince in this instance earl rivers condescended to translate a translation for the original of the dicts and sayings is in latin he was also the author of the metrical version of the proverbs of christina of pisa and of another of caxton's publications named cordial or memorare no Vissima, both from the french but these and the other translations in which the art of printing on its first establishment among us exercised its powers of multiplying the fountains of knowledge and of mental gratification were as walpole observes as much new and real presence to the age as original works would have been to lords worcester and rivers this writer conceives their country to have been in a great measure indebted for the restoration of learning the countenance the example he remarks of men and their situation must have operated more strongly than the attempts of an hundred professors benedictines and commentators science in england alchemists although chaucer had already set the example of writing on scientific subjects in the mother tongue by his treatise on the astrolabe the oldest work in english now known to exist on any branch of science this department of study was but very little cultivated in england during the present period the short list of english scientific works during the fifteenth century does not contain a single name remembered or deserving of being remembered in the history of science the dreams of astrology and alchemy still captivated and bewildered almost all who turned their attention either to mathematical or natural philosophy the only difference of opinion with regard to these mysterious pursuits was whether they were or were not forbidden by the law of god nobody doubted the most marvellous of their pretensions but many thought a skill in them was rather an inspiration from the prince of darkness than light from heaven probably however it was not any feeling of this kind that occasioned an act of parliament passed in the beginning of the reign of henry the fourth making it felony to practise the transmutation of metals there designated the multiplying of gold or silver or the craft of multiplication the prohibition has more the look of having been dictated by political or economical considerations as if there had been some apprehension that the operations of the multipliers might possibly affect the value of the king's coin henry the fourth at any rate with all his piety was as great a patron of the alchemists as edward the third had been before him these impostors practised with abundant success upon his weakness and credulity repeatedly inducing him to advance them money wherewith to prosecute their idle operations as well as procuring from him protections which he sometimes prevailed upon the parliament to confirm from the penalties of the statute that has just been mentioned in one of these protections granted to the three famous men john fosby john kirkeby and john rainey which was confirmed by parliament thirty first may fourteen fifty six the object of the researches of the said philosophers is described to be a certain most precious medicine called by some the mother and queen of medicines by some the inestimable glory by others the quintessence by others the philosopher's stone by others the elixir of life which cures all curable diseases with ease prolongs human life in perfect health and vigour of faculty to its utmost term heals all healable wounds is a most sovereign antidote against all poisons and is capable the enumeration of virtues concludes of preserving to us and our kingdom other great advantages such as the transmutation of other metals into real and fine gold and silver the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life it will be observed are here spoken of as one and the same medicine contrary we believe to the common notion the power attributed to the medicine also in the prolongation of life scarcely goes the length of the accounts usually given Fosby here mentioned as elsewhere, designated the king's physician. Another of Henry's physicians was Gilbert Keimer, who was a clergyman, and among other ecclesiastical promotions, held the offices of Dean of Salisbury and Chancellor of the University of Oxford. From this example, we may perceive that the practice of medicine was still, to some extent, in the hands of the clergy. The art itself appears to have made little or no progress within the present period, indeed it may be doubted if the knowledge that had formerly been derived from the arabic authors and schools was not now diminished rather than increased almost the only medical work that appeared in england in the fifteenth century even the title of which is now remembered is the dietarium de sanitatis custodia or dietary for the preservation of health of this dr gilbert keimer it is a tract consisting of twenty-six chapters and is dedicated like so many others of the productions of the learned of this age both in england and other countries to the great patron of literature humphrey duke of gloucester surgery was also in as rude a state as ever it appears from a record in the fidera that in henry v s army which won the battle of agincourt there was only one surgeon a certain john morris fifteen assistants whom he had pressed under a royal warrant not having yet landed of these assistants three were also to act as archers the whole number having the pay of common archers and more steed himself only that of a man-at-arms the art indeed was hardly yet considered as anything more than a species of mechanical handicraft it deserves to be noted however that the operation of lephotomy was successfully performed at paris for the first time at least by any modern surgeon in the year fourteen seventy four on a condemned criminal whose life was granted by the king to the petition of the physicians and surgeons of the city that he might serve according to the philosophic maxim as the corpus vile or worthless subject of the experiment latin chroniclers of the literary productions of this age the literary merits are in general of the humblest description among the latin historians or chroniclers thomas walsingham may be accounted one of the best if not the chief he was a benedictine of the abbey of st albans and is the author of two works one a history of england entitled historia brevis which begins at twelve seventy three where matthew paris ends and extends to the beginning of the reign of henry the sixth the other history of normandy under the title of epodigma neustrii from the first acquisition of the duchy by rollo the dane the style of these chronicles is sufficiently rude and unpolished but they are very full and circumstantial and the english history even in the earlier part of it contains many things not mentioned by any contemporary writer the compilation of english history by thomas Otterborne, a franciscan friar from the landing of brutus to the year fourteen twenty is held in small estimation a much more valuable performance is the chronicon of john de wethemstede abbot of st albans although it only extends from the year fourteen forty one to fourteen sixty one withamstede was a person of judgment as well as of considerable learning he was an especial favourite with duke Humphrey, who was accustomed to visit him in his monastery where the monks however accused their abbot of spending too much of his time in study and in writing books though he was a most liberal benefactor to their establishment but probably neither the libraries he built and furnished both at st albans and at oxford the organs and pictures with which he adorned the church and chapels of his monastery nor the extensive additions which he made to its buildings compensated in their estimation for tastes and habits so different from their own another of the latin historians of this period whose name is connected with duke Humphrey, is the italian titus livius foro juliensis as he calls himself the author of a life of henry v he was invited to england by the duke who appointed him to be his poet and orator his life of henry v however is very little else than an abridgment of the work on the same subject by thomas de ellen prior of linton whose barbarous style does not prevent his performance from being one of great historical value the italian affects to imitate the style of the illustrious ancient whose name he assumes but he is as may be supposed a very modern livy another of these analysts is william Botiner, or william of worcester the author of a chronicle extending from thirteen twenty four to fourteen ninety one which is nearly all a compilation and of very little value Botiner is also the author of the translation of cicero's treatise on old age already mentioned as one of caxton's publications the last of this class of writers we shall mention is john rossus or rouse of warwick the author of what he calls a history of the kings of england which nevertheless commences with the creation of the world although it does not contain much that is interesting till the author comes down to his own age The latter part of the fifteenth century it furnishes some curious details both of the events and the manners of that time french chroniclers two french writers monstrelet and conmin may be considered as in some sort belonging to this period of english history monstrelet whose narrative extends from fourteen hundred to fourteen fifty two with a supplement coming down to fourteen sixty seven by another hand is a very faithful but not a very lively chronicler of the contentions of the houses of orleans and burgundy and of the wars of the english in france in his own day gomine an actor to a considerable extent in the affairs which he relates is a writer of a superior stamp his memoirs extend from fourteen sixty four to fourteen ninety eight a period comprehending nearly the whole reign of louis the eleventh of france whom Comines may be said to make his hero and whose singular character gives much of a dramatic life to the narrative of the historian has none of the chivalrous enthusiasm of froissart and no other excitement of a very warm or imaginative character to make up for the want of it but observation sagacity and an unaffected straightforward way of writing give him a great power of carrying his reader along with him he is the best authority for the french transactions of the reign of our edward the fourth english chroniclers this age also affords us two or three english chroniclers the series of our modern English chroniclers may perhaps be most properly considered as commencing with john de trevisa's translation of Higden with various editions which as already mentioned was finished in thirteen eighty seven and was printed with a continuation to fourteen sixty by caxton in fourteen eighty two after trevisa comes john Harding who belongs to the fifteenth century his metrical chronicle of england coming down to the reign of edward the fourth the metre is melancholy enough but the part of the work relating to the author's own times is not without value harding is chiefly notorious as the author or at least the collector and producer of a great number of charters and other documents attesting acts of fealty done by the scottish to the english kings which are now generally admitted to be forgeries caxton himself must be reckoned our next english chronicler as the author both of the continuation of trevis and also of the concluding part of the volume entitled the chronicles of england published by him in fourteen eighty the body of which is translated from a latin chronicle by douglas a monk of glastonbury who lived in the preceding century neither of these performances however is calculated to add to the fame of the celebrated printer to this period we may also impart a sign the better-known concordance of histories of robert fabian citizen and draper of london though the author only died in fifteen twelve nor was his work printed till a few years later fabian's history which begins with brutus and comes down to his own time is in the greater part merely a translation from the preceding chroniclers its chief value consists in a number of notices it has preserved relating to the city of london bishop peacock fortescue mallory of the english theological writers of the age immediately following that of wycliffe the most noteworthy is reynold peacock bishop of asaph and afterwards of chichester as may be inferred from these ecclesiastical dignities peacock was no wycliffe but a defender of the established system both of doctrine and of church government he tells us himself in one of his books that twenty years of his life had been spent for the greater part in writing against the lollards but whatever effect his arguments may have produced upon those against whom they were directed they gave little satisfaction to the more zealous spirits on his own side who probably thought that he was too fond of reasoning with errors demanding punishment by a cautery sharper than that of the pen and the end was that he was himself in the year fourteen fifty seven charged with heresy and having been found guilty was first compelled to read a recantation and to commit fourteen of his books with his own hands to the flames at st paul's cross and then deprived of his bishopric and consigned to an imprisonment in which he was allowed the use neither of writing materials nor of books and in which he is supposed to have died about two years after one especial heresy alleged to be found in his writings was that in regard to matters of faith the church was not infallible bishop peacock's life has been ably and learnedly written by the rev john lewis to whom we also owe biographies of wycliffe and of caxton his numerous treatises are partly in english partly in latin of those in english the most remarkable is one entitled the repressor which he produced in fourteen forty nine a short specimen in which the spelling but only the spelling is modernized will give some notion of his manner of writing and of the extent to which the language had been adapted to prose eloquence or reasoning of the more formal kind in that age say to me good sir an answer hereto when men of the country upland bringen in into london in midsummer eve branches of trees from bishop's wood and flowers from the field and betaken the to citizens of london for to therewith array her houses shulden men of london receiving and taking though branches and flowers say and hold that the branches growen out of the carts which broughten them to london and that the carts or the hands of the bringers were in grounds and fundaments of the branches and flowers god forbid so little wit be in her heads certes though christ and his apostles were now living in london and would bring so as now said branches from bishops wood and flowers from the fields into london and wooden hem delivered to men that they make therewith her houses gay into remembrance of st john baptist and of this that it was prophesied of him that many should joy of his birth yet the men of london receiving so the branches and flowers oughtn't not say and feel that the branches and flowers grewen an out of christ's hands the branches grewen out of the boughs upon which the in bishops wood stood in, and the boughs grewen out of stocks or truncheons and the truncheons or shafts grewen out of the root and the root out of the next earth thereto upon which and in which the root is buried so that neither the cart neither the hands of the bringers neither the bringers be in the grounds or fundaments of the branches the good bishop we see has a popular and lively as well as clear and precise way of putting things it may be doubted nevertheless if his ingenious illustrations would be quite as convincing to the earnest and excited innovators to whom they were addressed as they were satisfactory to himself another eminent english prose writer of the state was sir john fortescue who was lord chief justice of the king's bench under henry the sixth and to whom the king is supposed to have also confided the great seal at some time during his expulsion from the throne fortescue is the author of various treatises some in english some in latin most of which however still remain in manuscript one in latin which was first sent to press in the reign of henry the eighth and has been repeatedly reprinted since is commonly referred to under the title of de laudibus legum angliae it has also been several times translated into english this treatise is drawn up in the form of a dialogue between the author and henry's unfortunate son edward prince of wales so barbarously put to death after the battle of tewkesbury fortescue's only english work that has been printed was probably written at a later date and would appear to have had for its object to secure for him now that the lancastrian cause was beaten to the ground the favour of the yorkist king edward the fourth it was first published in seventeen fourteen by mr john fortescue a land of the middle temple with the title of the difference between an absolute and limited monarchy as it more particularly regards the english constitution which of course is modern but has been generally adopted to designate the work the following passage in which the spelling is again reformed will enable the reader to compare fortescue as a writer with his contemporary peacock and is also curious both for its matter and its spirit and now so be it that the french king reigneth upon his people dominio regali yet st louis sometime king there nor any of his predecessors set never tallies nor other impositions upon the people of that land without the consent of the three estates which when they may be assembled are like to the court of parliament in england and this order kept many of his successors till late days that englishmen kept such a war in france that the three estates durst not come together and then for that cause and for great necessity which the french king had of goods for the defence of that land he took upon him to set tallies and other impositions upon the commons without the assent of the three estates but yet he would not set any such charges nor hath set upon the nobles for fear of rebellion and because the commons though they have grudged have not rebelled nor be hardy to rebel the french kings have yearly sithen set such charges upon them and so augmented the same charges as the same commons be so impoverished and destroyed that they may uneath live they drink water they eat apples with bread ripe brown made of rye they eat no flesh but if it be seldom a little lard or of the entrails or heads of beasts slain for the nobles and merchants of the land they wear no woolen but if it be a poor coat under their uttermost garment made of great canvas and passen not their knee wherefore they be guarded and their thighs bare their wives and children gone barefoot They may in none otherwise live. For some of them that was wont to pay to his landlord for his tenement, which he hireth by the year a scoot, payeth now to the king over that scoot five scoots. Wherethrough they be ar'died by necessity so to watch, labour, and grab in the ground for their sustenance, that their nature is much wasted, and the kind of them brought to nought. They gone crooked and are feeble, not able to fight nor to defend the realm. Nor have they weapon nor money to buy them weapon. Withal, but verily they live in the most extreme poverty and misery, and yet they dwell in one of the most fertile realms of the world. wherethrough the French king hath not men of his own realm able to defend it, except his nobles, which bear not such imposition, and therefore they are right likely of their bodies, by which cause the king is compelled to make his armies and retinues for defence of his land of strangers, as Scots, Spaniards, Aragoners, men of Almania and of other nations else all his enemies might overrun him for he hath no defence of his own except his castles and fortresses lo this the fruit of his regal. it is in the same spirit that the patriotic chief justice elsewhere boasts that there were more englishmen hanged for robbery in one year than frenchmen in seven and that if an englishman be poor and see another having riches which may be taken from him by night, he will not spare to do so fortescue was probably born not much more than thirty years after peacock but the english of the judge in vocabulary in grammatical forms in the modulation of the sentences and in its error altogether might seem to exhibit quite another stage of the language although both peacock and fortescue lived to see the great invention of printing and the latter at any rate survived the introduction of the new art into his native country no production of either appears to have been given to the world through the press in the lifetime of the writer perhaps this was also the case with another prose writer of this date who is remembered however less by his name than by the work of which he is the author and which still continues to be read the famous history of king arthur commonly known under the name of the mort Artur. this work was first printed by caxton in the year 1485. he tells us in his prologue or preface that the copy was given him by sir thomas mallory knight who took it out of certain books in french and reduced it into english mallory himself states at the end that he finished his task in the ninth year of king edward the fourth which would be in fourteen sixty nine or fourteen seventy the mort d'artour was several times reprinted in the course of the following century and a half the latest of the old editions having appeared in a quarto volume in sixteen thirty four from this two reprints were brought out by different london booksellers in the same year eighteen sixteen one in three duodecimos the other in two but the standard modern edition is that which appeared in two volumes quarto in the following year eighteen seventeen exactly reprinted from caxton's original edition with the title of the birth life and acts of king arthur of his noble knights of the round table etc with an introduction and notes by robert Southey. mallory whoever he may have been leland says he was welsh and supposing him to have been in the main only a translator must be admitted to show considerable mastery of expression his english is always animated and flowing and in its earnestness and tenderness occasionally rises to no common beauty and eloquence the concluding chapters in particular have been much admired we extract a few sentences then sir launcelot ever after eat but little meat nor drank but continually mourned until he was dead and then he sickened more and more and dried and dwindled away for the bishop nor none of his fellows might not make him to eat and little he drank that he was soon waxed shorter by a cubit than he was that the people could not know him for evermore day and night he prayed taking no rest but needfully as nature required sometimes he slumbered a broken sleep and always he was lying grovelling upon king arthur's and queen guinevere's tomb and there was no comfort that the bishop nor sir bors none of all his fellows could make him it availed nothing o ye mighty and pompous lords winning in the glorious transitory of this unstable life as in reigning over great realms and mighty great countries fortified with strong castles and towers edified with many a rich city yea also ye fierce and mighty knights so valiant in adventurous deeds of arms behold behold see how this mighty conqueror, king arthur whom in his human life all the world doubted yea also the noble queen guinevere which sometime sat in her chair adorned with gold pearls and precious stones now lie full low in obscure foss or pit covered with clods of earth and clay behold also this mighty champion sir launcelot peerless of all knighthood see now how he lieth grovelling upon the cold mould now being so feeble and faint that sometime was so terrible how and in what manner ought ye to be so desirous of worldly honour so dangerous therefore me thinketh this present book is right necessary often to be read for in all ye find the most gracious knightly and virtuous war of the most noble knights of the world whereby they got praising continually also meseemeth by the oft reading thereof ye shall greatly desire to accustom yourself in following of those gracious knightly deeds that is to say to dread god and to love righteousness faithfully and courageously to serve your sovereign prince and the more that god hath given you the triumphal honour the meeker ought ye to be ever fearing the unstableness of this deceitful world and so within fifteen days they came to joyous guard and there they laid his corpse in the body of the choir and sung and read many psalters and prayers over him and about him and even his visage was laid open and naked that all folk might behold him for such was the custom in those days that all men of worship should so lie with open visage till that they were buried and right thus as they were at their service there came sir ector de Maris, that had sought seven years all england scotland and wales seeking his brother sir launcelot and then sir ector threw his shield his sword and his helm from him and when he beheld sir Launcelot's visage he fell down in a swoon and when he awoke it were hard for any tongue to tell the doleful complaints that he made for his brother ah sir Launcelot, said he thou wert head of all christian knights and now i dare say said sir Bors, that sir Launcelot there thou liest thou wert never matched of none earthly knights hands and thou wert the courtliest knight that ever bare shield and thou wert the truest friend to thy lover that ever bestrode horse And thou wert the truest lover of a sinful man that ever loved woman, and thou wert the kindest man that ever stroked with sword, and thou wert the goodliest person that ever came among press of knights, and thou wert the meekest man and the gentlest that ever eat in hall among ladies, and thou wert the sternest knight to thy mortal foe that ever put spear in rest.